Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 23, Star Wars and Star Trek. So for the entirety of the podcast to this point, we've done deep dives on role-playing games created for specific genres, rather than those spun off from other popular mediums. Today we're going to break new ground by taking a look at two science fiction role-playing games based on the two, arguably, most popular science fiction franchises of all time, Star Wars and Star Trek. Needless to say, even in 2021, there are fans of both products who throw major shade at fans of the other. I, on the other hand, believe fandom is large enough to house both fandoms comfortably, and you can love them both, but for different reasons. Okay, that, that's my argument. Now, in order to avoid a bunch of nasty comments about why one series goes first or last, I flipped a coin to decide which game I was talking about first, with heads being Star Wars and tails being Star Trek. The coin came up heads. Now, usually this is the point where I would go into great detail about the source materials utilized as inspiration for a role-playing game, but I have to admit that if you don't know what Star Wars is at this point, I don't know if I can help you. Maybe you need to use that Disney Plus subscription for more than just Marvel stuff. Or for The Mandalorian, though I would argue at that point you're at least watching Star Wars. Anyway, the first version of the Star Wars role-playing game was released by West End Games in 1987. Designed by Greg Costigan, it obviously drew its inspiration from the original three movies, because those were the only things that were available at the time. In fact, it had only been four years since Return of the Jedi had played in theaters. I should also point out that, even at this point, there wasn't a whole lot of extra stuff out there for the Star Wars universe. I mean, there'd been comics and a few novels, but for the most part, it was the movies or it was nothing. Lucasfilm gave Costigan a wide berth for creating the game. In fact, it was this version of the game where alien names such as Twi'lek, Rodian, and Quarren appeared for the first time. Furthermore, there was so much stuff put into the books for this game that in the late 1980s, when Timothy Zahn was hired to write the novel trilogy that changed the game, the Thrawn Trilogy, Lucasfilm sent him a box of West End Games Star Wars role-playing games materials and instructed him to read over them and use them for reference if he so chose. So at that point in time, Lucasfilm considered the work of Costigan as canon. Now, we all know that the Disney purchase of Lucasfilm took a whole lot of stuff out of canon. However, thanks to a generation of Star Wars creators who grew up on the West End version of the role-playing game, along with the Thrawn trilogy, most of the stuff from the role-playing game has been reintegrated into canon. The game sold so well on release that West End Games released a second edition in 1992. They kept the name the same, and they made only a few changes to the material itself. In 1996, West End Games released a revision of the second edition, but they adjusted the title a bit, calling it the Star Wars Role-Playing Game, Second Edition Revised and Expanded. West End Games lost the license to Star Wars when the company declared bankruptcy in 1998, which brought the line to a close. By the time that happened, West End Games had published more than 140 sourcebook and adventure supplements. This grew and expanded the Star Wars universe far beyond anything else that had come to that point. 
I mean, the Thrawn trilogy was pretty damn good, but this podcast is about role-playing games, not books. So there. Now in 2018, Fantasy Flight Games decided to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the West End Games version of Star Wars and published the book with that title. This book includes the original core rulebook, plus the Star Wars sourcebook, which was a separate sourcebook in the original run. It should be added that during this original version's run, West End Games also published a 15-issue magazine series called the Star Wars Adventure Journal. These magazines were more like novels. They were about 280 pages of adventures and articles for the game itself, plus original short stories that would hopefully inspire game masters. News about Star Wars was also included in these issues. Needless to say, the magazine ended in 1998, shortly before the game itself did. Okay, so now that we've looked at the history of the West End Games version, let's break down the game a bit. It's a D6 system which we've discussed several times before in this podcast, and its game mechanics were basically the same as those from the Ghostbusters role-playing game, which West End had published previously. It needs to be pointed out that at the time, these were the only two games using this particular system. It's since become the D6 version we know and some of us love, but at the time, this was a new concept. First things first, players purchase attributes or traits for their characters using character points. Each character would have 12 points to use, and the traits could have between 1 and 5 for the score. And as I have mentioned previously, it was not a 1 point to 1 dot exchange. Each character also had to have four talents, which were organized into groups based on which of the traits they were most associated with. Now, when it comes to resolve tasks, or even to fight, the die pool comes into play. I mentioned the die pool concept in last week's show, but for those who may not have caught it, and why the hell didn't you catch it, let me get into it. Okay, and I'm going to slow my pace down a little bit, both so that you can understand what I'm saying, and so that I don't jack this shit up, because sometimes when I'm explaining this stuff, it causes me to trip all over, and while I'm a pretty good audio editor, I'm not that damn good. For the sake of our example, let's say we're doing a skill check to perform some athletic feat. Just use your Imagine Padawan. The Game Master tells us we'll be rolling our dexterity and our acrobatics, that's the trait and the talent, and assigns us a threshold we have to meet. In this case, he tells us we're going to need two successes. So, looking over our character sheet, we see that our character has two dots in dexterity and one dot in acrobatics, which makes me wonder why in the hell we're trying this stunt, but I've seen this shit tried before, so we're not that far off. We therefore roll three six-sided dice, and we know we need fives and sixes for success. Our roll is two, four, and five. Since our threshold was two, and we only had one success, we failed at the task. However, since we did have one success, nothing seriously bad should happen. It just should be we failed. At this point, the Game Master will detail how the check failed, providing us with that theater of the mind explanation so we can all see it. By the way, Star Wars refined the system over what it had done for Ghostbusters, and the overall success of this game helped make D6 a popular system for other games moving forward. Alright, so we've looked at the history, we've looked at the gameplay, what did I miss? Oh yeah, I missed reviews and the awards. Of course I did. Let's take care of that. 
Star Wars The Role-Playing Game won the Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Rules of 1987. It was also ranked ninth in the 1996 Reader Poll of Arcane Magazine to determine the 50 most popular role-playing games of all time. In that very article, the editor of Arcane, Paul Pettengale, said the following, The rich and varied background already created by the movies helps us a great deal, but there have been many games based on great fiction, and few of them work nearly as well as Star Wars the role-playing game. Everything about the system has been designed to complement the setting's unique blend of fantasy, science fiction, and myth, and to recreate the same feel and atmosphere as the movies. The rule system is beautiful in its simplicity, yet ably copes with everything from vicious space battles to speedy chases through narrow canyons. A clever set of guidelines covers the use of the Force, complete with details of both its light and dark sides, enabling characters to make heroic efforts and pull off the kind of stunts that are vital to what Star Wars is all about. Perhaps the perfect system for introducing new players to role-playing and yet offering more than enough to keep even the most jaded gamers happy. Wow. I'd say Mr. Pettengale liked the game. In truth, so did I. And so did a whole lot of other gamers. But we all know that the really good things don't stay gone for very long. And Star Wars as a role-playing game is definitely one of them. Now, if you'll remember, the first of the prequel movies came out in 1999. And with the increased fever and interest in all things Star Wars that came from the release of The Phantom Menace, Wizards of the Coast was able to acquire the license for the Star Wars role-playing game and decided to adapt it to their then-new D20 system. The Star Wars role-playing game, designed by Bill Slavichek, Andy Collins, and J.D. Wicker, was released in 2000. We'll discuss the nuts and bolts of playing this version of the game in a minute, but one of the big changes from the West End games was that this version of the game, especially with the supplements it released over time, covered three major eras in the Star Wars universe. The Rise of the Empire, the Galactic Civil War, and the New Jedi Order. Since the first two of those are covered in the first six movies, you should know those. The New Jedi Order, however, is something casual gamers, casual fans, might not know about. This is one of those times where, if you're interested, I would refer you to the series of books specifically classified in the series as the New Jedi Order. In truth, that's where I'd always hoped the sequel trilogy would have gone, and in reality, they'd have been really interesting movies. However, there were so many books, a lot of really good shit would have been left out, and, well, we all know how the haters are. Anyway, if you're looking for some reading material, maybe pick a few up. For the record, they are now called Legends material, since none of it is canon in the post-Disney Star Wars universe. Another big change, and here we go getting into nuts and bolts, is that the game utilizes a vitality wound point system rather than standard hit points. This meant that damage is divided into superficial, vitality, and serious, wound, and you can lose points accordingly. Also, the Star Wars role-playing game included stats for all of the major characters of the original trilogy, plus the movie The Phantom Menace. Now, I mentioned that this was a D20 game, so by this point you should understand what that means. D&D has been D20 since 2000, and there are a lot of other games that follow it. For those who really still don't understand it, just know that it's six ability scores, a class and a level, feats and skills, and the 20-sided die is used to resolve damn near everything. 
Wizards dropped a revised edition of this game in 2002, and that version added stats for characters through the movie Attack of the Clones. On June 5th, 2007, Wizards released one final version of the rules, called Star Wars Role-Playing Game Saga Edition Core Rulebook, it was considered to be the definitive work on the then-completed saga, as Revenge of the Sith had closed the series for the moment a few years earlier. This version changed some things from the original edition. Hit points were brought back, thereby dooming vitality and wounds to the dustbin of gaming history. The total number of character classes was reduced to five, Jedi, Noble, Scoundrel, Scout, and Soldier. Saving throws were changed to a series of defenses, and in my opinion, this was jacked up, because pretty much any sort of attack had a roll against one of these, and that just bogged shit down. Skill points were eliminated, and characters got a number of trained skills based on their class and intelligent bonus, which was a little bit of 4th edition and now 5th edition D&D. There were other changes, but for the purposes of this show, those were the biggies. Over time, each of the printings of the core rulebook got several different supplements released for it, and 35 different supplements were released over time. Star Wars role-playing game Saga Edition won the Gold Any Awards for Best Game, Best D20 Open Game Licensed Product, and Best Rules, as well as the Silver Award for Product of the Year in 2007. On January 28, 2010, Wizards announced they were not renewing their license for Star Wars and thus brought this second version of the role-playing game to an end. Here's the thing with Star Wars as a role-playing game, though. It just will not die. Fantasy Flight Games picked up the license in 2011 and still has it to this day. I mentioned the 30th anniversary edition of the West End Games version that they did, and this is why they were able to do that. Well, the license and the fact that West End Games was out of business, but let's not kick a dead horse. Anyway, Fantasy Flight released not one, not two, but five different rulebooks. The idea is that each rulebook makes for its own type of game and or setting. Edge of the Empire, designed by Dave Allen, Sean Carmen, and Jay Little and released in 2013, was specifically designed for players to play bounty hunters, colonists, hired guns, smugglers, or technicians. Age of Rebellion, designed by Sterling Hershey and released in 2014, was designed for players to play rebel soldiers and freedom fighters, with the big baddie being the Galactic Empire. Force and Destiny, also designed by Sterling Hershey and released in 2015, was designed for playing Jedi under the Empire's rule. Now, while each of these three were designed to sort of be standalone rules, obviously you can mix and match to make your campaign work. Also, obviously, these are all set during the time of the original trilogy of Star Wars. Book 4, The Force Awakens, was released in 2016 and adds to the time period of the sequel trilogy to the game world. Book 5, Rise of the Separatists, was released in 2018 and adds the prequel trilogy to the game. There have been several other supplements released over the years to provide more flavor for each individual game. Now, there are a couple of things about this version of the game that have not gone over well with gamers. First off, the game utilizes an odd set of dice. I mean, it's a pool of 6, 8, and 12-sided dice, which by itself wouldn't normally piss off gamers. But Fantasy Flight went one step further. 
They have dice specifically designed for this game, and they strongly encourage gamers to purchase them for use in the game. That's what kind of pissed some people off. Next up is the splitting of the classes into three separate books. Now, the company has said all along that Edge of Empire is supposed to be the core rulebook. However, each of the first three books have things the other two do not. So, having to buy all three books if they wanted everything, again, that kind of pissed some people off. Last but certainly not least, the mechanics of the games themselves are very different from either of the other two versions of the game. Now, this is where I would normally get into those nuts and bolts, but I have to admit, I, I've never played this version of the game, and, and I don't even have a copy of these rules. Normally, this wouldn't be a big deal, because I could read the basics pretty much anywhere online and figure out how to explain it to you. In this case, I figured out it's like me trying to read Latin. In other words, this shit's confusing. So, I'm going to keep working on it. If I ever get it figured out, I will do a YouTube video supplement and I will explain what the hell it's all about. So, I do have to offer my apologies. Now, the game has been decently received, even with the issues I just mentioned. Force and Destiny won an Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Game and Fan Favorite Role-Playing Game in 2016. Edge of the Empire won the Origins Award for Fan Favorite Role-Playing Game for 2017. So, there you go. So at this point, we're going to leave the galaxy far, far away and move on to the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, or whatever name you gave your ship in a Star Trek role-playing game. And yeah, I realize I'm 10 pages and 2,900 words into the podcast. I promised you two franchises today, so damn it, I'm giving you two franchises. 30 minutes show length be damned. Now, much like I said with Star Wars, if you don't know or don't get Star Trek by this point, there's not a whole hell of a lot I can do on this podcast to help educate you. However, there are 13 movies, seven or eight series, and a whole lot of other stuff out there about Trek for you to check out. And since I gave Disney Plus a shout out on the Star Wars end, I'll give Paramount Plus a shout out for this park. If it's Trek, they've got it. There have been several role-playing games licensed over the years, so buckle up, kids, because this is going to be a really interesting ride. The very first Star Trek role-playing game was released in 1978. Called Star Trek Adventure Gaming in the Final Frontier, it was designed by Michael Scott and published by Heritage Models. Since there had only been the original series and the animated series to this point, and not a whole lot of what was and wasn't considered canon, Scott had a bit of leeway in designing the game. His choice, then, was interesting. He set the game primarily on unexplored planets within the United Federation of Planets. He also assumed that the characters in the game would be Starfleet members, engaged in planetary exploration missions, and that they'd be senior staff members kind of like Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Uhura, Chekhov, Scotty, and Sulu in the original series. It should also be noted that the game was designed to take advantage of miniatures, which were also developed and sold by Heritage. The role-playing game was split into two parts, a basic game, which used pre-generated characters from the series, and an advanced game, which allowed for full character creation and had added combat rules. Looking at the basic rules, they are just what the name implies. The rules are complete, but it's obvious that Scott wrote these rules for Trek fans who were new to role-playing games. There is a section detailing what players need to do in preparation to play, as well as explaining the basics of the rules. 
These rules also provide a breakdown of Trek equipment and how it works in roleplay. And, for the record, the pre-generated characters were the aforementioned Kirk, Spot, etc. It also included Emres and Arix from the animated series. You'd have to watch the animated series to ever have seen them, much less ever have them mentioned ever. There you go. The advanced rules were just that. Advanced. Everything the player needed to understand and or know about creating a character for the game was included, including about 20 pages of information charts. The various races and classes were expanded upon, explaining what each of them did and giving options to utilize for gameplay. This version also had advanced combat rules, descriptions of alien races, more equipment, and two introductory scenarios. Now, this game was lacking in a whole lot of ways. There was no way for characters to grow, either by gaining experience or by getting new skills or anything like that. Also, there were no rules for aging or for salaries. There were no guidelines for costs or for price lists. The Game Master, still known as the Referee here, was responsible more for the use of miniatures than for anything else in the game. However, one thing that was introduced here and would be integrated into later Trek shows and games was the ability for a junior officer to question the actions of a commanding officer. You know, when they say, permission to speak freely, sir? Yeah, this is where that started. True to Trek at the time, the success of a mission was if the mission was accomplished without violating the Prime Directive. There was no search for wealth or glory. Oh, and one more thing that was lacking. There were no starship rules. The adventures were all landing party, or away team in current parlance, missions. Jerry Connor reviewed this game in The Space Gamer, Issue 30. He said that, The game is fair, but only recommended to Star Trek fans with a background in role-playing games. Both are necessary for a complete understanding and appreciation of the game. The game sold fairly well, but Heritage dropped the license by the early 1980s. In 1982, Michael Scott took Star Trek Adventure Gaming in the Final Frontier, reworked it a bit, and had it published by Terra Games Company as Starfleet Voyages. This was possible because Heritage USA, which had published the previous game, had first dropped the license, then went out of business. Scott tightened up the rules a bit, adding more material on skills, the organization of Starfleet, ranks and uniforms, and added materials from the first two movies. There was also a division in the core book. The landing party covered the adventure parts of the game, much like the original. However, starship conflict and combat was now allowed as well, and this was covered in the Starflight section. The landing party got the basic and advanced split of rules that the previous line had had. With adding Starflight rules, this also meant some starships had to be added. There were a few, and these were the only ones, quote-unquote, allowed for combat in the game. Characters also had to deal with the limitations of starship powers, as there was typically not enough power for both shields and weapons, or to maneuver and fight, or... You get the point. This game did not go over well. William A. Barton reviewed Starfleet Voyages in the Space Gamer issue 63, and here's what he said. If you own the Heritage Star Trek rules, Star Patrol, and the SFBA, I see no reason to waste the money on the couple of pages of new material in Starfleet Voyages. 
even if you don't have any or all of the three, unless you just have to have every Star Trek related game in print, I'd still recommend passing on this one and going the extra amount for the FASA Star Trek game. Ouch. Needless to say, that was the one and only printing. And since Mr. Barton brought up the FASA game in his review, let's discuss it next. Star Trek The Role-Playing Game was published by FASA and designed by Guy McLemore, Greg Pauline, and David Taipool and was released in 1982. Now, there's a bit of history leading up to this release. FASA's Jordan Wiseman actively sought out, then managed to acquire what was considered one of the biggest licenses in sci-fi in Star Trek. However, he didn't have anyone in-house he wanted to use to create the game based on the property. So, looking outside of FASA, he and his team accepted submissions from freelancers. But they were looking for the perfect game, as you might expect, and blew through four different designs early in the process, noting that they focused too much on combat. Weissman stated on more than one occasion that he wanted a game that fit more with Gene Roddenberry's vision of a utopian future than what he'd been seeing up to that point. The aforementioned design crew came up with the winning design, and their battle solution was played out on a square grid. The game itself was published as a box set with a 128-page book, an 80-page book, a 56-page book, two counter sheets, and dice. Now, Wiseman was insistent that the game not turn into a board game when Space Combat took place, so the designers came up with a unique idea. Each section would have their own console to operate during combat, and the captain oversaw and coordinated everybody else. This is a system that has, for the most part, lived on in subsequent versions, with section heads making roles for their individual systems based on the needs of the situation and on the orders from the captain. This game got a second edition in 1983, which cleaned up some of the issues from the previous year's issue, then got a supplement, the Klingons, which not only provided the greatest amount of information about the Klingons to that point, but arguably influenced Paramount's creative process concerning the Klingons moving forward. FASA would continue publishing materials for their game into the late 1980s, including two supplements based on the then-new Next Generation series, Officer's Manual in 1988 and First Year Sourcebook in 1989. Paramount decided that these two new books didn't match their vision for Star Trek moving forward, and apparently believing that the game encouraged players to play as the classic characters and commit acts of unspeakable violence, pulled FASA's license in 1989. Okay, so with history covered, let's dig into this version of the game. The setting, much like the previous Star Trek games, was the universe before Next Generation. Again, the characters were assumed to be Starfleet officers, and again, assumed to be the senior crew on a starship. The game introduced several new starship classes that weren't based on anything from the series or movies to that point, but the designs do kind of borrow heavily from the standards that had been established. In other words, while the designers made new ships, they didn't get too radical. This game also set a standard of sort for Stardates. As many a Trek fan knows, Stardates in the original series were arbitrary, though it's admitted that the dates got bigger the later in the series you got. For this game, FASA introduced reference Stardates, which were based on Gregorian dates. I'm going to slow down so I get this out clear. This means that the year 2XYS, month MM, day DD, becomes stardate X slash YZMM dot DD. 
Yeah, that's not confusing at all. Okay, for the sake of argument, today's date, 2021-1029, would be stardate 0 slash 2110.29. Or, as they would say, Captain's Log, stardate 2110.29. There you go. Now, we know that stardates were adjusted again when Next Generation hit screens, and have been continually tinkered with since. So while this isn't a perfect system, for 1982, it was at least something consistent. The game itself is a skill-based system. However, the skills are determined by time spent in previous service. The rules thoroughly cover character creation and give you everything you need to create a solid character. Insofar as die rolls, and there are die rolls, there was a percentile-based system, which means either a percentile die and a d10, or two d10s would be rolled when something needed to be done. This game sold really well. In fact, I have to admit that this is the first version of a Star Trek role-playing game I ever played, though admittedly I didn't get to play it first until 1992. Let's get a review from William A. Barton, who reviewed the game in Space Gamer, Issue 64. I like this game, and I think you will too, despite any picky points you can find that don't quite agree with your own concept of how a Star Trek game should be. It has its flaws, as does any system, and it wasn't possible to cover every aspect of Star Trek in one game. But everything you really need for a satisfying Star Trek role-playing system is to be found here. In fact, just about everything you need for any science fiction role-playing game. So I recommend you not be put off by the high price of the package. I think you'll be glad you entered the final frontier. This game, so far, is my pick of the best role-playing system of 1983. Oh, and when the second edition was released, Mr. Barton gave it an even better review than the first one. So, obviously he was a fan. During the time that this game was being published, there was a Japan-only game that was also getting published. It was officially licensed and called Enterprise, role-play game in Star Trek, and was published by Sukuda Hobby in 1983. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to get any information on this game in English, so I can't break it down for you. However, if you can read Japanese, there's a ton of stuff out there about the game. Give it a look, and, and maybe translate it and send it to me, and again, I can do an update. Next up in the history of Star Trek role-playing games is Prime Directive. Prime Directive was designed by Mark Costello and Timothy D. Olson and released by Task Force Games in 1993. Prime Directive brought the excitement of Star Trek to the D6 game system, which we discussed just a bit ago in the West End Games version of Star Wars. Changes to this game from other versions of Trek games were a multi-tiered task resolution system where characters could achieve complete, moderate, minimal, failure, or botch levels of success. The character reputation and background system, which allowed characters to spontaneously develop skills, abilities, and prior associations appropriate to the mission at hand. The biggest complaint about this version was that character selection was limited to members of a prime team, so not a captain or other important decision maker, though later supplements rectified that problem. Also, since the rules were unique to this version, many players chose not to purchase the new rules because they didn't want to have to learn yet another set of rules. This version got the core rules, a Federation sourcebook, and a couple of adventures. 
Once Task Force Games went under, and therefore Prime Directive was canceled, Amarillo Design Bureau, Inc., which was the design group responsible for it, needed a new home. Steve Jackson Games was willing to publish, though the game required some changes so that it would fit into the GURPS rules. Gary Plana made the necessary design adjustments, and Steve Jackson Games published the GURPS versions of the game in 2002 and another in 2004. Now, we'll break down what GURPS is in another episode. For now, just understand this. In GURPS, the game is very open, with just about anything within reason being possible. There's also been a D20 version of this particular system, also published by Steve Jackson Games, and Jonathan Thompson handled the design adjustments. What were the changes? Well, if you remember what I was talking about for the Star Wars D20, replace Star Trek stuff for the Star Wars specific stuff, and you've got it. While the games sold okay, the reviews were not overly kind. Chris McCubbin reviewed Prime Directive for Pyramid Issue 7, that was May 1994. He said, My advice to Star Trek fans interested in Prime Directive is to play it, but play it on its own terms, as a good, solid outer space military adventure without trying to squeeze it into the TV show's mold in every tiny detail. To tell you the truth, the universe of Prime Directive is much more playable than the Star Trek universe anyway, while preserving most of the elements that got Trekkies interested in Star Trek in the first place. In 1998, Last Unicorn Games got a shot at the Star Trek universe. Now, there were some license issues, so Last Unicorn wasn't allowed to publish the entirety of the then-known Trek universe in one book. Instead, the plan was to publish a core book for each series. Next Generation got the first book in 1988, and Deep Space Nine and the original series got theirs in 1999. Last Unicorn lost their license before the Voyager book could be released because... Of course, Voyager got hosed. Of course it did. Christian Moore, Ross Isaacs, Kenneth Height, and Stephen S. Long were the designers for the three books. Numerous supplements for the line were released, and since the cancellation, Stephen S. Long has even offered to complete unfinished work for free so that fans of these games can have their supplements. This version of the game utilizes the icon system. But I'll be damned if I know what that is. I mean, I searched all over the internet, and all I'm getting are different kinds of computer systems. So, if you know what the icon system is, as it refers to role-playing games, hit me up, and I will give you credit on this show when I put your information out there. Star Trek The Next Generation Role-Playing Game got the 1998 Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Game. The review of the game in Pyramid, no review name given, by the way, says... The ST, TNG, RPG, how's that for an abbreviation, captures the feel of the next generation television show right off. The cover is striking and the graphics throughout impressive, done in the Starfleet style of icons created for the series. Of course the review didn't say anything about the gameplay, but at least it looked good. Of course the license for Star Trek has continued to move along, and it did so again. Decipher Inc. acquired the license and published Star Trek role-playing game in 2002. Designed by Matt Colville, Kenneth Height, Ross S. Isaacs, Stephen S. Long, Don Mappin, Christian Moore, and Owen Seiler, this was the first Star Trek core book that included all of the series at the time, all four, in its rules. 
Now, when Decipher got the license, they also got the majority of the material from Last Unicorn Games. While they used some of it, they chose to base this version of the game more on the D20 version that had come out a few years earlier. It, however, should be noted that this game utilized the CODA system rules. For once, I'm not going to tell you we're talking about CODA in another show. This one's simple enough to explain. I'm going to do it right now. So I guess this is some bonus material shit right here. The CODA system uses six-sided dice to resolve actions. Also, there are sets of character statistics, skills, and edges, and these function much like they do in D20, though they're feats in the D20 system. Also, characters belong to a class, and they can actually have more than one class. Advancement is what is termed as N advancement, which is similar to the level system in D20. Advancement gives the player a number of picks with which they can use to buy upgrades to their characters, statistics, and abilities. Characters also have a total hit point pool segmented into health levels. Each level of damage incurred imposes a wound penalty to those certain actions. Characters also have a number of weariness levels. Extended or intense activity can result in penalties to certain actions based on the number of weariness levels lost. So, that's the CODA system. One change for this game is that 2d6 are rolled to resolve actions rather than a pool of dice or just a single d6. The latest entry into the Star Trek role-playing universe is Star Trek Adventures, published by Modifius Entertainment. Dropped in 2017, this version of the Star Trek role-playing game utilizes the 2D20 system developed by Modifius Entertainment for other games they developed over the years. This version also allows characters to play several different races, and the number of classes is also fairly open. A big difference between this game and previous games is that there are multiple different time periods to set your game in, and they correspond to the various time periods of the Star Trek series. There are also more starships in this game than in other versions as well, and starship combat is better developed than in previous editions. Normally I list out the creators of a game, but that list has been difficult to dig up. However, this version has had development input over its various supplements from writers who actually collaborated on some of the various Star Trek series. Marshall Honoroff reviewed the game for Space.com in early 2018, and he said, between its approachability and its versatility, Star Trek Adventures won me over in a big way. Adjudicating actions is simple and clear, while just about every character will have a time to shine. Whether it's a doctor making a breakthrough cure for an alien plague, or an engineer patching up a shuttlecraft just in time to outrun the deadly ion storm, players will be able to do the same incredible things that their favorite characters do on screen right out of the gate. Now, I can personally vouch for this game as well, as my group played it a little over a year ago. It does take a second or two to read over the rules, but it's a fairly quick second. Once that's done, this game is really easy to play. Now, I can't speak for running. It's my buddy Jim that was the GM for this, so I'll have to hit him up and maybe we'll do a YouTube thing on that. Oh, and what exactly is the 2D20 system? Created by Modifius, it's a more narrative system designed to produce varied results. For pretty much every task, players roll 2d20 and want the lowest possible roll on each one. There are also opportunities to purchase more dice for rolls to increase the levels of success, but this comes at a cost, typically by giving the DM advantages for his NPCs. And that, in a nutshell, is it. Needless to say, when you look at Star Trek and Star Wars from a role-playing game standpoint, 
one thing that stands out is that Star Wars tends to stay with one publisher for a long period of time, while Star Trek tends to publisher hop. However, when it comes to gameplay, all I can say is this. It's up to your own personal preference. And with that, we come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we're going to look at West End Games, as well as the designer, Greg Kostikin. As we release this week's episode, this coming Sunday is Halloween. Regardless of whether or not you celebrate it, or how you celebrate it, please be careful and take care of yourselves. Whether or not we want to admit it, there's still a pandemic going on out there. So if you have to take a couple extra minutes to make sure you're good, do that. I need all the listeners I can get, so I can't afford to lose any of you to this dumbass virus. Now, for the post-Thanksgiving episode, I've gotten two very interesting suggestions. At For The Loot Gaming on Twitch has reached out to me and suggested that we do a deep dive into the history and evolution of classes in D&D. They said that's something they'd be interested in hearing about. Also, my daughter suggested something similar. She'd like me to get into the history and creation of some of the different monsters in D&D. I find both of those intriguing, and I'd like your input on this, so hit me up in the usual places. Also, if you're listening to this on Spotify, I've got a poll up. Basically, you're going to have three choices. Do you want me to do a deep dive on a D&D race or two? Do you want me to do a deep dive on a D&D monster or two? Or the third choice, you don't like either one of those, you want me to try something else. So, take a minute, take the poll, I would appreciate it. As always, the music we use to intro and outro this podcast comes from Pixabay.com. If you're looking for good, royalty-free music to use for your podcast or your project, go check them out. They've also got backgrounds you can use, as well as a whole bunch of other stuff I didn't even look into. And they're not paying me a dime, so if I'm talking about it, you know I must really like it. Thanks for joining us this and every week on this podcast. Oh, and coming soon, we're going to have a TikTok going. Yep, my old fat ass is going on TikTok. The basic idea is to promote the podcast, so we'll see how well this goes. I'll have more info on that next week. And yes, credit for that idea goes to my daughter, so thanks, kiddo. Love you. You can catch us on Facebook, Roleplaying History Podcast. Twitter, at RolePlayingP. YouTube, Roleplaying History Podcast. You know what to do when you get there. You can always email us, RolePlayingHistoryPodcast at gmail.com. Okay, so next week we're going to check out West End Games and learn a hell of a lot more about Greg Kostikin. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your role-playing history. Role-playing history.